Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine, the show where we take a look inside the working day of some of the most successful and inspiring and creative authors around. This week, we're chatting to Mark Ellis. He is a lawyer turned businessman turned crime writer who's just published his fifth Frank Merlin book called Dead in the Water. We talk about how his love of wartime and his intrigue in the crime that went on during it sparked his imagination also why he does simply extraordinarily long drafts and then cuts them down and you can hear why when he's in a bind he lets the characters sort it all out so what do i do with these people yeah. and then you, know, you often read uh, interviews with authors where they say the characters take over well it, it, it does happen you know you think i've made this person now what would he do in this particular situation and if this happened how would she react and then all of a sudden, you've got a story. There's more on the way with Mark Ellis in a brand new writer's routine. Yes, welcome along to the show. This is Writer's Routine, where we take a look inside an author's working day. Find out how they get ideas, then where they put themselves, how they plan their day... How much coffee they drink, what music they listen to, what time they start, what time they finish, all in order to get that idea down and then published. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you for being there. Thank you for downloading, streaming, following and listening to us. It's a very special episode this week because for the first time in over two years, it's face to face. It's not a Zoom. It's not a Zencaster or a clean feed, if you know your tech jargon. Uh, Mark was very kind, very gracious enough to uh, let me into his home because we couldn't get the tech sorted on the Zoom. But, you know, we figure these things out. So I went over to his lovely home. He was so kind enough to welcome me in to chat about his brand new book. It's called Dead in the Water. It's all about DCI Frank Merlin, a detective during the war. This one's set in London, 1942. Here's the blurb. In a bombed-out London, DCI Frank Merlin's battle against rampant crime continues. In a city teeming with spies, a mangled body is found in the Thames just as priceless art goes missing. Now, you can hear how he had the idea for the book, what he did with it, where he sat when he wrote it down, how he organised his thoughts to make this fifth book hopefully the best yet. 
you can hear how not only was inspired by his love of war, but also in particular with this one about the richest man who was alive at the time. We talk how much he knows about Frank Merlin. Mark is a pretty big pantser working as his fingers hit the keyboard, really. But with a series like this, with a continuing character, how much does he know what he'll be doing next novel, maybe three novels down the line? Also, we chat about why for Mark it's all about persistence and KBO and whether he thinks that success in other careers really helps you with your writing. There's lots on the way in this one. It's a very special episode. The first in two years where it's face to face. I can't believe we've got back to this point. So let's jump into it with Mark Ellis and what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Um, well, I can see where we're sitting now because it's directly across the garden. But um, I, I, I have a nice view, whether it's winter or summer, in the, in the sense that I'm looking at the garden. And um, it's a very pleasant outlook. Uh, and I'm sitting in a nice big desk. And I've got various uh, parts of my World War II library scattered around the room and um, amongst other personal effects. And um, it's all very cosy. Well, may I say, I, I, I was in there with you, as I say, a, a minute or so ago. And there was you had photos of families around. You had a few books. There was nothing... Um, like practical to the story that you're telling no whiteboards no pin boards no post-it notes what is there that lets you know when you are sat there what story you're telling um i do use um pin boards and post-it notes but my uh, my other half is extremely tidy and occasionally she puts them down on the floor she puts them in a, car- a cupboard or whatever and i pull them out so um yes i have that but it's not that that's usually quite early on in the process when um because i'm i'm one of those uh, uh, what they call a pantser i don't know the story when i start out so i usually get to a point like halfway through where i've set a number of plot lines going and i do find it useful then to sit down and, and write some sort of uh framework to look at and it you know, helps me think a little bit but generally speaking um the way i write i uh, I splurge out a first draft manuscript. I'm not editing it at all as I go along. I just splurge it out. When I've started, because I'm writing a series um, set in a certain period of time, uh, and I've al- I'm already on book five, so I've got my main characters. I don't have to worry about them, uh, Frank Merlin, his team in Scotland Yard, etc. And I've got my period because each book is set six to nine months after the last. So before I start, so I'm now in that situation with Merlin six, I've decided uh, the current one, Dead in the Water, is set in the summer of 1942. The next one will be set in the spring of 1943. So I'm sitting down reading an awful lot about the specific period of spring of 1943. Against the background, of course, I have quite a broad general knowledge about World War II, the home front, what was going on in the war, and so on. So I sit down, I've got, I do my research, it usually gives me some ideas, and I kick off, and I produce... Uh, in the instance of Dead in the Water, it was a 200,000 word first draft. Then I edit, and I edit 15 to 20 times, 15 to 20 full edits, uh, and I got I got this one down to 110,000 words, which is much more manageable. And, you know, when I finally got to the point where I'm happy with it, it goes off to uh, headline uh, the publishers, and they have their own look. In this particular instance, they, they, they were very helpful with their edit, but it was there were no, no structural changes. It was like a 5% edit where they made definite, definite improvements. But and generally speaking, 
I've not had to structurally reorganise any of my books. Somehow or other, despite the way I do it, they come out okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that's spawned quite a lot of questions. We'll get to that in just a sec. Let me just take you back to your writing room. Yeah. You were telling me how when you sit there, you try and channel. I mean, we're in you know fairly leafy London here. You try and channel an incredibly famous author. Uh, j just tell us more about who may have lived near you and what they may have written. Well, well uh, she definitely did did leave did live uh, did live. Uh, she's on the back road to us, uh, which is Sheffield Terrace, and um, about two doors along, Agatha Christie lived for a number of years uh, in the thirties and. There's some debate about which book she wrote there because she also lived uh, she lived in another house around the corner and the other way, and in one or other of them she wrote Death on the Nile or Murder on the Orient Express. It's it's believed. Yeah, it's a bit like a, whenever you go to a pub and and they claim that um, oh uh, Dick Dick Turpin went there. Dick Turpin seemingly went to every pub around the UK. Whenever you go there, they'll try and claim it. No, no, no she definitely lived. You no, know, she lived there, but there's, what there's she a but what she wrote there. <laughs> we'll have to discuss. Absolutely. But yes, when I'm sitting there and I'm stuck, I think, yes, Agatha, channel over to me, please. You know, send it to me, send it to me. <laughs> so, uh, as I say, you've taken us around your writing space pretty well. We get quite niche, quite nerdy. What do you write on and what do you write with? I mean, when, you're, when you're splurging out your 200,000 word first draft. Um, well, uh, now I do it on an iPad in Word. The first three books I did longhand. Yeah, and I felt happier about it. I felt closer to everything by doing it that way. And um, in the third one, I think I transitioned. Why? Um, well, I, was, I, w I wanted to be quicker because the, pr the process of the first two books was that... Um, uh, I, I, so I wrote the manuscript and then I had a, a very good friend who'd worked for me as a PA when I was in business, uh, Audrey. And Audrey, I would give the book to Audrey and she could read my writing and then she would go through it and produce it. But it took her, you know, she had a full time job, mm. so she was doing it part time. It would take maybe a month or five weeks for, for the book to come back, maybe even six weeks. And um, and in inevitably there would be errors because she couldn't have worked out exactly what I said. Whereas I decided that the best thing to do is to write it out and then put it on the word, which is what I did on the third book. So it was a hybrid uh, process with the third book. And then I got fully ac accomplished, is that the right yeah. word, accommodated to word. And then I decided on you know, the fourth one, I would just go for broke and then do it straight. And it's I'm completely used to it now and I'm quite perfectly happy with it. Okay, so as of this minute, I'm in a research mode. So, um, and obviously in particular, it's last week the book was published. There's a lot of stuff going on. So this is not my normal routine. I will be getting back to my normal routine, I think in a week or two. And I will then sit down to continue the research into the specific period of the next book, which will take me three months. When I first started out, you know, which is before the 2010, the internet was not so well developed and I would have to, I used to go to the Kew Public Record Office, for example, to read old newspapers to get ideas. Now, of course, everything's on the internet. You can get, you find everything on the internet. You can find out whether it was uh, raining on a particular day in St. James's Square uh, in 1941, or you can find which planes were up in the air in the Blitz. 
it's it's amazing what you can find out definitively. And I mention these things because I'm specific about accuracy. I think it's important to be accurate without being too pedantic and without boring readers by putting too much stuff just just to show how clever you are. So um, this uh, my research period now, I go on the internet, uh, I read a lot of books, not just history books, I read novels set in the period, for example, Graham Greene or End of the Affair, something like that. I read lots of diaries, lots of biographies, um, and usually from somewhere in that, during the, during the research process, I'll get the idea for the next book. And then I'll start out, as I say, not in a structured way, I'll just get going, and somehow or other plots come to, to, come, come to me. Um, once the research is over, I get into writing mode. So I tend to uh, like to go to the gym and do a little bit of workout every day. Uh, ideally, I do that first thing, then I come and come back, and then I perhaps kick off writing half past nine, uh, up ten o'clock. Keep going through to lunchtime, have have a break, then carry on for a couple of hours. I tend to be hard writing more in the morning, and and generally, as I say, I don't revise the first draft while I'm writing it, but. When it gets to the afternoon, if there are various factual things, I can go back and check up and so on. And, that, and that's my day. And I set myself a target of doing a certain number of words per week. And as I say to people who always say, I don't know how you write a bookmark. And I said, well, if you, if you sit down every day or every week and you put down whatever your target is, 4,000 words, 5,000, 6,000, I think generally my target is 6,000. Then all of a sudden, you know, several weeks later, you've got, you've got a manuscript and then, then you've got something to work with. Rather pompously, I, I, I say, you know, a sculptor, doesn't, a sculptor has a rock or a marble to work with. The writer doesn't. He needs to create the rock or the marble. That's your first draft. Then you start chipping away. So, um, as I say, I, I produced the first draft week, day in, day out. I'm going in doing that. Then when I've when I've finished that, um, I don't take a breather. I just go straight into editing, and I, as I say, I do fifteen to twenty full edits, which takes a long time mm. before I, before I'm happy with the um, with the story and the plot and the book. Now, when your day is done, when your writing is over, uh, how good are you at switching off? Come meal times with your family, how good are you at? Yeah, I can switch off, but I mean that doesn't mean you can't have ideas when you're. You know, you might have ideas when you wake up in the morning. Quite often I have ideas when I wake up in the morning. Um, I don't know whether I've acquired them, you know, by some sort of uh, osmosis in in, in, uh, in dreamland, but I do have ideas. Uh, but no, I, I'm, 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 perf- I'm quite a relaxed person. I, I, I don't get too stressed. Uh, I've had, as everyone has, a bit of stress in my life, but I, these days I don't. And I just, uh, I, I relax and we have a nice meal or, or whatever, uh, or do whatever else we're doing. And then the next day, it's back to it. May I ask you, at what age did you publish your first novel? Well, the, the first book was published in 2011. At which age, uh, let me work this out. Um, so I was born in 1953, uh, so I was 58. So, and you'd come off the back of, well, a successful career across law and business. How much do you think, because you were saying just a second ago, set yourself a target, 6,000 words, make sure you get that every day, you've got structure, you've got planning. Every week, 6,000 every week. Every week, yes. Um, How much do you think your career beforehand, you know, business, law, quite structured, uh, productive careers, how much do you think that has helped you as a writer, being able to know what you want and being able to sit down and do it? Well, I think... um 
you know, people ask me, you know, what's the most important lesson in life? And I usually say persistence or in Ch Churchill's words, keep buggering on <laughs> KBO because you don't achieve anything in life without persisting. And in my business life, uh, so I, I was only a lawyer for a couple of years. Then I went into business working for other people. Then eventually in 1990, after, so that's after about 15 years working for other people, I set up a computer company on my, on my own with a partner. The two of us, we set it up. And over a period of about 10 years, uh, we made it quite, uh, well, successful and we sold it to an American company. But during that whole period of setting that company up and building it, there were lots of extremely stressful moments. Uh, running a business is stressful. Starting a business, there's risk involved. You know, there are times when you think, oh, we're not going to make it. And, and all of that attitude that I had that ultimately meant that we succeeded, yes, I apply that to the, my books. I mean, um, anyone who's tried to write a book usually encounters people saying, oh, you'll never get a book published, Mark. It's impossible, you know, and what makes you think you're up to getting a book published, blah, blah, blah. And the people had said the same to me about my business. So, you know, don't, you'll never get anywhere. And, you know, and we did. And so, and I have, as an author, it's taken a while, but I, 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 I persisted. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get the first book published, so I self-published it. Then in due course, uh, uh, there was publisher interest. And eventually I ended up with one of the biggest publishers in the country, Hachette. So um, keep plugging away. In business, I did that. And in my books and my writing, I do that. So when you'd finished your business career, as, as, as it was, you know, many people would have sold a company, quite a successful company, probably pocketed a little bit of cash and maybe, you know, retired off to the sunset somewhere. Why sit down and embark on this third act, as it were, and uh, try your hand at writing? What, what was it that called you to do that? Well, I, I, when I was young, when I was a kid um, and when I was a student in university, that's what I had in my mind was to be a writer. Um, and I did, in fact, write a sort of uh, uh, glittering prizes type novel. If you know the reference, it's a, a Frederick Raphael book about students in Cambridge and whatever. I wrote something like that. And then I put it away. And the, the logical thing seemed at that point, I'd done law, so I'd become a lawyer. And then that led me all the way up through the path of working for businesses, setting up my own business. And that then 30 years went. And even though I had wanted to write, I couldn't keep up any writing, really, because I had such a full business life. So when we did sell the company, I, I, I hadn't lost the desire to become a writer. So I said, I've got no excuse now. And I, I sold the, the business. Uh, I have a bit of leeway that I can go ahead and uh, try. And so I did. And then I just kept plugging away at it. Now, this is taking you back, what, 11 years? So it might be hard to kind of pinpoint the details. I'm just curious. So how did you do that? So day one of thinking, yeah, I'm going to be a writer now. What did you do? Was it as simple as just plonking yourself down? Well, yes, I, we didn't, I didn't live in this house at that time. I, I lived in Barnes. And um, yes, I sat down in my living room in Barnes and I, I, I had to decide what I wanted to write about first. And I uh, I had the idea, A, I wanted to write good books, but I, d I also wanted to write books that might actually sell and make some money. And of course, crime fiction is yeah. is the genre to do that. Then I was, then I, I've, I've always been a great history buff. So I, I wanted to do history. I thought historical crime fiction. Initially, I had an idea about uh, sort of Daniel Defoe type character, fictional character in the 18th century, because he was a very interesting guy. I, I mention it because I still might do it, you know, because yeah. he was a spy, he was a writer, he was a 
pamphleteer, a very interesting life. But anyway, I decided not to do that. And I had specific uh, personal reasons why World War II meant something to me. My father, uh, although he didn't die in the war, he died because of the war. He, he contracted a lung disease, went on naval service in East Africa, and it took him a long time. He didn't die till 1960, but it was all down to having contracted this, this disease. Uh, so that I was then seven. So World War Two lo- loomed quite large in my life. Yeah. Uh, and then my mother, my mother was, uh, you know, a, a young adult in the war. And she used to tell me funny stories about she worked in the railway. I'm Welsh. So she she worked in the place. There's a bit of the, the, the twang there, I would say. There's yeah, a bit sometimes, of the yeah, 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 yeah. Because I was born in England, then I went back to Wales and, you know, I've been around the world a bit. But yes, I do. Especially if I'm, if I'm with a Welsh person. Yeah, yeah it definitely comes out. But um, so, um, but she she lived in Llanelli. My father was from Swansea. Swansea, of course, got blitzed during the war, and she could see that from her hilltop garden in Llanelli. But then she worked for the railway, and it was then as it is now the Great Western Railway. It was there then, went away. It's come back, and you you know I think when you work for the railway, certainly then I don't know what the rules are now, but you get a lot of free tickets or reduced price tickets, and you can come up to London. In those days, you could come up and stay in the Strand Palace hotel for pretty much nothing so she was like a you know 16 17 18 she'd come up with her mates for a weekend in london and she so this was later in the war so this is like 1944 and i used to say mum well you know there were the doodle bugs there was a lot of bombing then and it was very dangerous and i said well didn't that put you off i said well no because you've got to go on living your life and having fun and that gave me the broader perspective of you know life on the home front where you know people just get got on with it and yeah. normal life went on an element of normal life being crime of course and then i researched crime in the world world war Two, and i found that uh, contrary to what most people think most people tend to think that criminals played along and with a stiff upper lip of the war and didn't, and didn't really you know they did they, they committed crimes but they didn't go too far out yeah there? whereas in fact it was a boom time for criminals and the crime rose 60 percent between 1939 and 1945 in England and Wales, you, you just think about it, you have the blackout. I mean, that gave you criminals huge scope uh, to do things. You had rationing, which involved, then there was the black market. Yeah. Uh, you had vice, uh, because there were, especially later in the second half of the war, you had lots of soldiers milling around, coming into London or other big cities, looking for a fun night out. Yeah. And therefore there was prostitution, brothels and so on. And uh, all of this then, I thought, well, this is great. And, and I, not many people had written this sort of story. Uh, we had elements of it on TV because you had something called Foyle's War, mm-hmm. um, which was very good. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. But it's not the same as my stories because I'm in London and, and Foyle actually mostly is out of London. But it's a very full, rich a- uh, area to go into and develop fictional plots for the policemen. So just back to the writing day very quickly. Um, if you're struggling, if the words aren't coming, you've said that you like to get it done early, you like to go to the gym if you can beforehand. Is there anything else that you've picked up along the way that just helps you out? Uh, maybe a cup of tea or a piece of music at a certain time? Uh, no, I, I, oh, I frequently write to music. Um, usually, um, you know, I'm, I've got eclectic tastes, everything from Mozart to Van Morrison. But generally speaking, I prefer classical music uh, to listen to. Sometimes I listen to classic FM, but, you know, sometimes obviously there's presenters yeah. getting, gets irritating. So I've got tons of stuff on my Spotify, you know, and I listen to Mozart, Beethoven, that sort of stuff, you know. Vorjak, I'm very into Vorjak these days. <laughs> he's, he's very soothing for writing books. Now, 
I'm just, I'm getting my head around writing 200,000 words. Like, you know you don't need to do that. You know you're making life harder for yourself because you've got to do 15 edits down the road. It's a very, very naive and trite question. Why don't you just write fewer first time around? Because of the way I write, which is I don't really know quite where my plot is going to go. And I usually like to set up three or four subplots. And um, by the time you developed all the lines you can possibly do, then you've got 200,000 words. I'm not saying all of my previous, I think perhaps the last one, Death in Mayfair, was like 150,000. But this, this Dead in the Water has quite intricate plots. Um, you know, and, and again, going back to my method methodology of doing my research and how it comes out in the books. So when I started writing it, I had a number of strands of history in my mind. One was that we'd reached a period in the war when the American troops were coming over. And that led me to research what, what happened there. And amongst the things I learned was that there was ter ter terrific racial prejudice. Um, as we know, you know, in, especially in the Deep South, but, but everywhere in America, more so than here, because our black population was not so large, anything like as large as America. So people, the white soldiers came over here. If they saw black soldiers dancing with white English girls, they would go, some of them would go mad. There would be fights. They didn't like to see black soldiers in, their, in pubs. So in due course, there was an element of segregation, pubs yeah. allocated. So that was one idea. Right. Another idea was not so much of the period, but I thought could be developed interestingly was the whole thing about the Nazis looting art from yeah. the Jews before the war. And and so the first scenes in the book are before the war with a family uh, being uh, packed off to a concentration camp and their art being stolen. So I thought that's an interesting thing. And um, I read a biography about a man called Gulbenkian, Kast, uh, Kalust Gulbenkian. People don't recognize the name particularly now, but. In 1942, he was probably the richest man in the world, probably richer than even the Rockefeller. He had been an Armenian who lived in England quite a lot of the time, who introduced all the major oil companies to the Middle East in you know the very early stages of the oil industry in, in the 1910s and 20s. And he, you know, his nickname shows what he did. He was called Mr. Five Percent. Okay. And so he became extremely rich. I read this interesting biography about him. In 1942, he'd ended up in Lisbon because um, I, I think if I give the entire backstory, it will go on too long. But he was sitting there in Lisbon still. He was a great art collector. And um, I thought, well, he's in Lisbon. And uh, they say there's this art that comes, it's been looted, possibly been looted, that ends up in London. He wants to buy it. And that set me going. And then I had the background, the, the background of, the, of what was happening with the black soldiers, which I could work into it. Um, and... Um, also, of course, Lisbon was a hotbed of espionage uh, during the war. You know, it was neutral. Okay. So, you know, there were Germans could be sitting on the one end of a roulette table and MI5 could be sitting on another end and the Russians could be there too. And so I developed an espionage line which would m blend into the stories. By the, so by the time I worked all of those things out, I got 200,000 words. <laughs> and obviously I, I realized I had to cut stuff, you know, and, then, and, and to interweave it more cleverly. And more succinctly. Which and is how good are you at killing your darlings in that position where you've got these three more strands that you've researched quite thoroughly? How good are you at saying... Well, the, all the strands are there. I just I just had overwritten it right. and um, put more in that was necessary uh, for the story. And um, so and I'm quite good at killing my darlings. 
you know, five books in, I've developed quite a lot of experience and I can see when I don't need that, I don't need that. And, and of course, you, you're you reliant on your editor, the publisher's editor too, because they'd made some very nice tweaks. Uh, I had made some... There's always a tendency when you've done a lot of historical research to put too much in. Yeah. And you think, well, people might be interested to know that and you do it. But in fact, it, it, it can often hold up the story. So you've got to be very strict with it and then it's good to have a third party at the at the end of the process saying well you don't really need that mark you can take that there so um yeah but i i enjoy i really you know i find writing the first draft very hard work i've i enjoy the editing and why do you find it hard work then i guess i, I know well, because got, because I know it's pure, so much because but... it's purely creative and you you know you you, you know as i say um i was i, I was speaking to someone uh, last weekend i was at bristol crime fest and a good good friend of mine, um, who's very prolific, writes two books a year. How he does that, I don't know. But he writes 45,000 word drafts of what the story will be. Right. And then he, he gets onto it. You know, I could never, I could never do that. Because uh, one of the great pleasures of writing the way I write is I don't know who did what to whom. Mm. So I'm like a reader. It sort of comes to me in the end, you know. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll be back with more from Mark in just a sec. Very quickly popping up to say if you're enjoying the show, if you like what we do, if you're getting any inspiration, any tips along the way, you can always help us out on Patreon. It's so simple. Patreon.com forward slash writers routine. It doesn't take a lot either. Just a couple of dollars a month. It helps us out. It helps us carry on doing this to keep bringing you these chats with the best authors around as often as we can. And now for that, you get our unending thanks as always. You get merch there is bonus content there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show it doesn't have to carry on for as long as you want there's no obligation month to month can be a little rolling donation just something to say thanks for all the episodes that we bring you and it can be as much as you like whenever you like you can stop and start and it really helps out the show a little goes such a long way i really appreciate everything so thank you for helping out at patreon.com forward slash writers routine 
Let's get back to it then, talking to Mark Ellis as he runs us through the makings of his new book, Dead in the Water, about DCI Frank Merlin, a detective hunting criminals during the war. In this half, you can hear how he feels about his books being retitled because he's moved through publishers as he's moved to his newest publisher. They felt maybe renaming some of his books would make them easier to find on the shelves. You can hear how authors really feel about those tiny little details and how precious they can be. Also, how much he thinks about the must-haves, the beats, the plot points, the standard tropes that come along in crime fiction. And we pick things up talking about that long first draft and the edits. How long does the whole thing take him? I get it finished. Um, I got So I got this finished um, and edited by the by the beginning of this year so I can't remember now if it was January well, we're May now, so yeah. yeah it's a January I think when I had the final edits maybe January and um, and then I'm organising you know whatever the, the PR stuff and so on so the, um, the answer to your question is I give myself like three four months off to cope with the publication although I have been reading around yeah. I've already been reading certain ideas so I have not not stopped completely but in the next week or two when all the all the, the road shows yeah. and all that stuff are done Oh, you know, I'll get back to it. Now, this is book five, as you say? This is book five that's come, this just come out, and, and next one will be book six. Yeah, and you you say you can't, that, that, you know, they're set in six-month six time intervals. How well, mu- actually, more like eight, nine months, I, I worked it out. I used to think, it's anything between six to nine months. So, for example, my thought process on this is, this is, this is set in August uh, 1942, um, I didn't want to have anything so that yet. So that is six months, isn't it? Six to seven months. I haven't decided yet whether it's April or May. Okay. So, <laughs> so I didn't want to have another book at Christmas because my, uh, yeah, uh, Death in Mayfair was set around Christmas. So, you know, so I've done all that yeah. snow stuff and yeah. whatever. So I wanted, I hadn't done one in the spring. I've done, I've done one at, one at Christmas, one in January. Well, January is not much different, is it? I've done yeah. one January, uh, the it's first book. The first book was June 1940. The second book was September 1940, which is the Battle of Britain. The third book was June 1941, uh, which was uh, Merlin at War, which has now, now been retitled, by the way. You know, um, yeah. I don't know if you're aware of that. But um, And then Death in Mayfair was Christmas, which coincided with Pearl Harbor. And there was the Americans coming into the war. And this one is... As I say, August 1942. Very quickly, just on uh, a retitling of a book, how do you kind of feel about that when suddenly, uh, you know, a few years into its existence, your publisher says, oh, maybe we'll tweak it like this? Well, you know, so um, I've only been with uh, Headline, which is part of Hachette, uh, for a couple of years. Um, They took me on. The fourth book was already pretty much ready to go when they became my publisher. So they didn't really, you know, they, they were involved in the title and the cover, but there was an established cover. So um, they said to me in the run-up to this, what would you think about our relaunching the series? And of course, if, if it's a relaunch, that sounds good to me. Yeah. It means the publisher is getting behind behind you because obviously it involves money to relaunch <laughs> you. And they, they came up with this cover to Dead in the Water and they decided, well, I think it would be a good idea to have the, all the other color, covers matching, um, which they now yeah. do as of a couple of days ago. And then, and then they thought, well, you know, so the first three books have been retitled. And the first one was Prince's Gate. It's now The Embassy Murders. The second one was Stalin's Gold. It's now In the Shadows of the Blitz. And the third one was Merlin at War, which is now The French Spy. 
all of those they say and I, I can completely see it if you're in it browsing in a bookshop and you're looking for a thriller you see something called Prince's Gate what does that tell you yeah what does Stalin's Gold tell you okay it tells you Stalin what does yeah. Merlin Merlin at War when I came up with that title or agreed that title with the publishers then um you know I was thinking along the lines of I love Maigret so you know most of the books of Maigret you know Maigret down here Maigret up there whatever yeah but I'm not that established as May Gray yet to do that. So I'm, I'm perfectly happy. And those names, pretty much, you know, I went away. They said, well, think of some names. They thought of some names. And pretty much the names that, that we have are the ones I thought of. So I'm perfectly happy now. I was a bit worried that people would lose track, but it seems to have gone quite smoothly, the process. So the answer to your question is I'm perfectly happy. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, I've always, you never get around to kind of speaking about those aspects of writing. Uh, Frank Merlin, this is the fifth book, and you've got the sixth book, and you're doing two different things because not only are you writing these crime stories that are also slightly historical, well, they are historical fiction as well. You're also telling Frank's story. How much do you know about his whole story? So what maybe what he'll be doing in book 10, how he as a character is changing as the war does? Um, I haven't planned that. As again, I don't I don't work yeah. it all out. I mean, um, he has had some developments in his personal life, but I, I won't go into those because the other day, uh, when I was at Crime Fest, one of my fellow authors said he, his wife had just read the story and then read the interview where you mentioned what happens in his personal life. And uh, they said it wasn't the end of the world. It's not the most important thing. You weren't relieve it, uh, revealing the plot. But nevertheless, it was a reveal that we could have done without. So I'm not going to say anything. How does he develop as a character? You know, so he's he's less happy. At the beginning of the war, he's less happy because his wife has just died of leukemia. So without going into too much detail, he yeah. gets happier in his personal life and things happen to him which make him a happier man. But meanwhile, um, he, you know, he's working in a difficult situation. He has a cranky boss, which, as, as do many um, of these detectives in, yeah. in fiction. Uh, he has his team, but and he battles away against the crime. He's, he's completely, uh, he's not corruptible at all. There is corruption. No, there was corruption in, um, in the wartime police. <clears throat> so, um, but I don't know where he'll be in 10 years, time, you know, at the end of the war, in three years' time. I'm not quite sure where he'll be. Um, it's part of the joy of doing it that, that I'll, it'll come to me. If there are developments, they'll come to me and we'll see. He's not the only uh, detective who's a bit grisly, who's sad because something awful has happened in his personal life, who's up against his boss. There are other, not necessarily historical, but there are other books that feature a yes. protagonist like that. How much do you think about making him different, different consciously. Yeah, no, yeah. Well, that, that's why I give, gave him the background I've given him, because he's actually half Spanish, half English. His father uh, was, a, was a seaman who came from Corona um, in the early parts of the 20th century um, and met um, a Cockney girl called Agnes, uh, and they got married. Uh, the Cockney girl's family ran a chandlery in Limehouse. Um, the, the, Merlin's father was called Javier Marino, um, and I got that name because somewhere I was on a holiday in Spain. I was looking at a sheep, you know, because Merino is a type of wool or sheep. Yeah. yeah. And um, so they got married. He got fed up with people mispronouncing his name, changed his name to Harry Merlin. Francisco Merino became Frank Merlin and there are two other siblings and so on. And um, so he has a bit of a Mediterranean Latin element to him, which I can bring out. To differentiate him from other people, I mean, he could swear in Spanish, yeah. for example, and the plots. Some of the plots feature uh, his family. You know, he's got he's got a sister who's gone to uh, marry a cousin in Spain, so that's Franco and all that stuff. 
Um, but I am, I am conscious that I don't want to, to make him just a repeat of so many of the other people. Yeah. To, to make, try and make him different. I mean, at the moment, you mentioned Grizzly. He might have been a bit grizzly at the beginning, but now he's quite jolly. Okay. Um, but 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 his the re- main reason if he's not jolly is because he's working so hard. Right. And and he's brave, and you know sometimes he gets uh, caught by knife knife. You know he has to put up with all of that, and he has a very good team, and his team have ups and downs too, which he has to manage. Okay, well, I've talked a bit about this book. I can, I'll talk about the previous book now, uh, which perhaps is a bit more straightforward in the way I develop my plot. Yeah. Um, it, while I was doing my research period for um, the, the uh, Death in Mayfair, I read a book about the wartime uh, film studio system. Um, and I had not realized how many wartime studios there were. Mm. Um, there were like 16 or 17. And um, some of them are still around. Some of them, many of them are not. Uh, and that made me interested in why don't I make this story about the film industry and about maybe a film star, a uh, badly treated film star or something like that. Then I'd always been very keen on um, uh, the films of Alexander Corder, um, the, the film producer of, for example, The Third Man, which okay. is my favourite film. And he had an interesting backstory. You know, he came from Hungary, ended up here, became the number one film producer, um, so then I went off and researched. I'd read a biography years ago, so I read it, reread it, and so and then I decided to read about film stars who were around then. So I read about Rex Harrison, for example, yeah. and Rex Harrison had a rather you know chancy sort of shady sort of personal life. I think was it three of his wives committed suicide, okay. two or three, or, right. or a girlfriend and two wives, something like that. Okay, something yeah, yeah. and he was re- reputed to be pretty. Uh, tough on his women and pretty rude and not right. a, not necessarily a very nice person. Right. So I thought that's a model for a character. And then so I read lots of other mm. Hollywood, you know, film star type things. And um, uh, so so then I had the studio background. So I invented a studio and I invented a Alexander, Alexander Corder type producer. And then I had film stars. I had a, also had a character um, uh, rough, roughly based on some of the comics of the time. Um, George Formby, I had a character based around, I'm not saying it was George Formby, but elements of George Formby in it. And I threw them into the mix and I would, you know, so so we'd have, uh, uh, and then there was a beautiful film star who was badly treated by the Rex Harrison person, etc., etc. So you get up to that point, say maybe like a third or a quarter, no, maybe a third of the way in, yeah. and I got all those things happening. Okay. So what do I do with these people? Yeah. And then you, know, you often read uh, interviews with authors where they say the characters take over. Well, it, it, it does happen. You know, you think, I've made this person now. What would he do in this particular situation? And if this happened, how would she react? And then all of a sudden, you've got a story. And at what point are you figuring it out yourself? So when do you know how this is all going to tie together. It's usually about two-thirds of the way through. Really? Yeah. And, and and usually at that point, I've got the, the framework set up there and I'm looking at it thinking, heck, what am I going to do here or whatever? But yeah, I mean, I mean, in, in Dead in the Water, I didn't really know who did what until the last 10%, actually. Wow. I'd set up, you know, I'd set up a number of yeah. potential people uh, who could have done it? I and mean, of course, you're doing that all the time. If you've yeah. got if you've got a crime, you've got to work out. There's got to be at least you know at least three or four people who might have done it, and um, you do that, and then then and you you have to make it credible that they might have done it, or incredible, but you have a very surprising denouement, you know, whatever. So so yeah. 
So I, I, yes, I was of my two hundred thousand word first draft. I was probably at around one hundred and seventy thousand when I when I worked out what happened uh, at the end. Wow! And eleven years ago, <clears throat> excuse me, eleven years ago when you started to write crime. Yeah. No, I was uh, nice. No, remember, I, that, that was when the first one was published. So I started like four or five years. So first, sorry. So the say, first book took me like four or five years. Oh well, let's say because I didn't know what I was doing. Okay. And, <laughs> so a little while ago, when you started writing crime, and you had written something a bit more fancy when you were young. Uh, crime is quite, the genre of crime is quite specific in what readers want, the way they want it to be written. How much do you think about like traditional beat points and red herrings and also specifically the word that comes next, like the structure of sentences? How much thought do you give to that? Um, well, uh, let me answer about red herrings. I, I was aware from day one that you had to have a few red herrings otherwise you haven't really got much of a sort of mystery going on so I've always got red herrings in my background of course uh, by the same token if you set up a whole bunch of people who could have done something you know even as late as the 80% 90% way through you, you can still have lots of red, red herrings coming on in terms of writing style um, I think I've got better um, do I think about it um, you know, well first of all I learned you shouldn't be repetitive uh, and it's quite easy to be repetitive, not just words that appear too much. Uh, but I, rem I remember with my first book, um, I was encouraged by an agent. I didn't have an agent, but he, he oh, I did have him briefly, but he, he retired, was retiring really. But he gave he was the first person to give me some encouragement. And I remember when he looked at the first draft, he said too many cups of tea, Mark. You know, <laughs> So, you know, you, you all these sort of if if you've got Merlin and Merlin likes to go to the pub and have a beer, but you can't do that too much. You've got to ration it out yeah. and and mix it up and try and do different things socially with the characters. Um, but then, you know, so when I finish the, the the draft on on Word, you know, I try and I go through. I press certain words I know that I tend to use too much, and I press and and you know it says eighty times or whatever. So then I go in. And I just trim the words. Um, but each word, I, I do, and, and I wasn't really conscious about this uh, from the outset, but I do write uh, filmically in the sense of sh uh, short, sharp scenes, mm. generally speaking. That's quite analytical, uh, you know, figuring out that oh, yeah, Merlin takes too, has too many pints, he's too many cups of tea, I use this word too much. And, uh, you know, coming as you did from business, I'll, I'll, I'll hark back to that. It's hard to be successful in business unless you can kind of figure out what you're good at and then what you're bad at and then trying to improve. I guess lastly, five published books down now. Uh, what would you like to change about the way you write or the way your day is planned? What would you still like to improve upon? Um, I'd write, I would like to write the books quicker, which would, which would really mean me putting more hours in than I do. <laughs> so when I say I've got a target of 6,000 words a week, I'm going to try and write this one at ten to twelve thousand, right. and see where I, see how I go. Um, in terms of the specifics, I do. I believe my style has now developed to a style which is um, my own, and I, I was very pleased last week. So I was I was a Times Pick of the Week mm -hmm. for the Crime Club, and um, the reviewer said some very nice things. But what, the one he said at the end is, above all, it's very well written, and I think that's all you can hope for as a writer is that people think you you know. Well, but a, you want them to like your stories, but if they think you're, you're, you write well, then that's, that's wonderful.
And that is it for Mark Ellis on the show this week. Uh, I need to thank Mark so much for letting me into his gorgeous home. Really appreciate it for being the first in-person interview uh, post-lockdowns in a couple of years. The book is called Dead in the Water, the fifth DCI Frank Merlin novel. Grab a copy from your local bookshop if you can. Now, next week, we're chatting to Janice Hallett. Fresh off the back of her phenomenal success with The Appeal. One of the crime books of last year. I read it on holiday. I'm not an especially speedy reader, but I wolfed it down. All 450 odd pages. I just cracked through it in one day on a sunbed in the Tenerifean sun. And then my girlfriend did the exact same thing the next day. Janice is coming on the show next week uh, to tell us about the makings of that. And also all about the new book, the follow-up called The Twyford Code. Uh, It's a fantastic chat. We really do get into it. I've got so many questions because I love the book so much. So make sure you are following and subscribed so that automatically downloads to your podcast feed with Janice Hallett next week on the show. In the meantime, you can help us out. Support us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You can give us a follow on Twitter. We are at writers pod there and you can get in touch with the show at writersroutine.com. And I will see you next week with Janice Hallett. Until then, bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.